Well, jumping Jack Flash, it's a gas, gas, gas. Welcome to episode 71 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminson, and with me is the uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen. And uh, feeling energized this morning, Prof. G'day, how are you? Yes, yes, of course, Hugh. I mean, you know, how could one not feel energized? I, I had the opportunity to head to Newcastle and, and uh, bounce the PM as he entered uh, to make this big announcement that he was going to get in the business of coal, uh, of gas-fired power if the private sector doesn't step up. Uh, he was very happy to see me, I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, and it was, uh, it was fascinating to see him talk about something that has since been criticised from quite different perspectives by both his former resources minister, Matt Canavan, who thinks that they should focus on coal-fired power, not gas, but then also criticised by his former prime minister, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, who says this is absurd, uh, they should be focusing on renewables. So, uh, he, yeah, may, maybe that means that he's found the middle road, Hugh. Well, it's, uh, his skill is to find the middle road, but uh, obviously this is the destroyer of prime ministers, this whole issue of energy and emissions reduction. And it's funny because we're now seeing... Um, what seems to me a fairly sinuous, slippery, convoluted sort of policy being put together, which it seems mm. to me um, may have some merits, but uh, it seems to me at least partially constructed to try to uh, rem- you know, make sure that there is no immovable target that Scott Morrison is placing on his own forehead or chest or wherever you want, might want to put it, um, so that... Uh, you know, the, the difficulty in the past is that when governments have taken fixed positions on energy and emissions reductions, they've tended to be murdered. Uh, that seems to be part of the politics behind this. Yeah, look, it, it, it's really interesting to me because I, I have to confess, like in, in this debilitating energy debate that really, in a sense, goes back to the 2007 election when both sides of politics ran on an emissions trading scheme uh, where it was all really about climate change more than energy at the time. Uh, And, of course, Kevin Rudd was the one out of the vanguard on this and it was John Howard who was willing to then embrace the concept of an ETS almost to kill the issue off politically. Uh, And all the tumult that's followed since then and the leaders, as you've mentioned, that that have lost their leadership because of it or been weakened by it, uh, governments that have lost because of it or been weakened by it, I have to confess, during all of that time, those 13 or so years, I've focused much more on the politics of energy and climate change than I have on the policy structures. You know, you've, you've had people that have written a lot about this, like Lenore Taylor, who now is Guardian's editor. Uh, she was, I remember when she was at The Australian with me, she was incredibly well-versed in the ins and outs of this, uh, and no doubt still is. Uh, I, I have more focused on the politics of it. So I, I leave it to others, if you like, to talk about the merits of the various options that are there in terms of energy and, and what is, is best suited to reducing emissions. However, in terms of the politics of this, which I do think is, as you've just alluded to, I think that's Scott Morrison's focus. I think as far as the politics goes, he's actually found a pretty good spot, whether that actually is a good policy spot, it's a whole other debate. But politically, what he's kind of done is he's avoided himself being sort of typecast as the laggard who's advocating coal, which is what a Matt Canavan perhaps looks like. And that's certainly what Tony Abbott looked like as well. And it was what Scott Morrison was at risk of looking like when he held up that lump of coal in the parliament saying to Labor, don't be afraid of it. So he's avoided, if you like, the worst of that. But he hasn't gone 
all in on the renewables side in a way which, again, irrespective of the policy merits, large chunks of his side of politics would be highly critical of him if he went too far in that direction, just like they were of Malcolm Turnbull at different points in time, even though what they've offered up really has been quite timid, as I understand it, on that side of the ledger. So in terms of walking the political tightrope and avoiding what you say, Hugh, avoiding becoming another victim of the energy and climate wars, I suspect that was what it was all about for Scott Morrison. And I think in that sense, from what I can tell, he seems to have walked that tightrope. Now, that's only the politics, though. Maybe in a policy sense, people with much more know-how on this than me take the view that what he's put forward is a debacle. I don't know. Sure. So I've been trying to read up on this and, and try to de- understand it more deeply on the policy level. And from Angus Taylor with his speech to the National Press Club, they've got this... Um, it's awkward to grasp, but basically there are five priority technologies for investment now that they've declared. One of them is clean hydrogen. The other one mm. is energy storage, which is predominantly batteries. Then there's low carbon steel and low carbon aluminium. Carbon cap- capture and storage gets a gig in there, the, the old fave. And soil carbon, which is another complex issue. So there's a little bit of something in there for everyone. And then when they get down to the re-legislating of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency and the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which were all set up to support renewables, they're now being redirected into what they call four Uh, priority areas and there'll be money into what's called the first one which is the potentially transformative technologies uh, some of which seem a little bit science fiction but where the government believes if it puts in some investment early that can act as an accelerator to technologies that are only just emerging but then you go down to the other end of the scale and they've got what they call the mature technologies and these are stated to be coal in other words they're not going to the idea here is that they're not going to get any investment from the government unless there's been a market failure. So people Mm. certainly might feel relieved that there is going to be no government investment in coal. Sorry, Tony Abbott. Sorry, Matt Canavan. Uh, Gas is on that list. We're going to talk about gas because plainly in the act of announcing that, they're also enacting that they're not going to obey those rules and they're claiming the market failure. So coal, gas, but also solar and wind. So the argument they're making is that these two staples of renewable energy Uh, the centre to the argument in many ways over the last decade and more, solar and wind are now, what do you know, mature technologies on the same level as coal and gas and therefore no longer need any investment uh, from the government to help them along. That itself is an interesting signal to say, uh, you know, they can stand on their own feet. They need no more help from us. How does that sit, do you think? Well, I don't, I don't know how people are going to feel about that. I mean, how do you think people are going to feel about that? Well, uh, look, I think people may need to adjust. Is, is, is it even accurate? Well, the Prime Minister says that 40%, I, I presume these numbers are right, he gave them in a, in a speech, but he says four out of 10 Australian households have rooftop solar. And you'd have to say, and that, that still continues, that people aren't take, dismantling them and throwing them away, that there are more and more people going into that. So on that basis, that's a pretty good uh, penetration into the market. And it suggests that uh, punters out there, whether being motivated by the desire to be greener in their natural habits or to save money in the longer term, which will be a strong motivation for most, um, are nevertheless, they've seized on this and, and they're keen on it. They're very keen on it in regional areas. If you travel around you know, the regions, you see a lot of rooftop solar. Uh, so 
you know, and then wind obviously is not the kind of thing most people have on, on their roofs or sort of stuck in the back garden. That's a slightly different thing, but that may come. So in a sense, what he's saying is that the real, or what the government is saying is that the real area where we need the government investment is to go into um, new things that are coming in, which have not yet had much support to get them going. There's a lot of focus on this clean hydrogen that's that's coming along. But one of them obviously is going to be this carbon capture and storage. It's been around, um, you know, Rudd used to spruik it. Uh, mm. it. It is derided by some as being a pointless, as being a just a, a, a pure fantasy. But in fact, the chief scientist says that's a real thing. The IPCC has said it's a real thing. And there is an argument that if you want to uh, crack uh, hydrogen out of water, to create hydrogen as an energy source, you've got two ways of doing it. One is to use renewable energy to do that, and then you get a purely green, that's a green, clean hydrogen. And the other way is to use <clears throat> uh, essentially dirty forms of energy to crack a clean energy source at the other end. So you use dirty forms of uh, energy and you get a clean hydrogen energy source but it, the, that only works, Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, says if you use carbon capture and storage in cracking open that hydrogen uh, to, to bury, to capture and to bury all that kind of stuff. So that technology is out there. And that's the argument that's going to be made. But the difficulty, I guess, is, is that they're still very, very soft and wishy-washy on targets. You know, mm. This all might sound good, but if it is so good, why is the government unable to say, with all of these things, we're going to deliver net emissions by 2050, uh, net zero emissions, I should say, by 2050, or, you know, they're saying in the second half of the century. That surely is a signal to people who are sceptical about these processes that it's still not serious. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm certain it is. It's an interesting one. I guess they just don't want to get caught on the maths of how they achieve it between now and then if they obviously are thinking that it perhaps won't be achieved. They, they keep telling us that, that that's the direction that we're heading, but if they make it a firm target, then they put themselves in the line of fire to be accused of not moving fast enough towards it. Not that any of them will be there by then anyway, which I've always found these things, meaningless is the wrong way to put it, but I've always found it interesting when these promises are made, when there isn't policy detail to go with it, which has often been the case. Uh, they're, they're, they're sort of these aspirational targets with, with little meat on the bone to go to go with how they're actually going to ultimately get there. But, uh, but unquestionably, uh, the, the world is moving in that direction. Uh, and, and the issue for a lot of punters, surely, is to what extent can prices stay as low as conceivably possible without us putting ourselves in a position where we're emitting drastically more than we should, as opposed to as little as we can. Uh, I, I think that's where uh, the, the, the politics of this intersect. Do you think it's a conflict having the same person as your energy minister and your emissions reduction minister? The reason I ask that is because on the one hand, the energy minister's sort of remit, if you like, is to try to find the cheapest conceivable um, you know, power for Australians. You know, I mean, obviously it's more complicated than that, but that in a political sense is, 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 is the task. So on the one hand, Angus Taylor needs to try to make power prices as cheap as possible. Goal number one. On the other hand, as the emissions reduction minister, one presumes that if you're the minister for emissions reductions, you've got a goal of emission reductions, uh, which does not necessarily match the price point goal of the energy minister. Now, wouldn't it be better to have different people like used to be the case in these two roles, battling it out in cabinet, 
making their arguments internally as well as to what extent they're allowed to under cabinet solidarity publicly and and then the you know the the the, the wider policy remit making the choice uh, about where they where they land on this yeah, I mean, that was Josh Frydenberg's yeah. role under, um, under Turnbull, wasn't he? He had both those portfolios and the argument was and made... And I remember at the, at the time thinking it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the argument for it at the time was that you can have the argument with yourself and see where you land. But it's interesting because Angus Taylor, who hasn't, let's face it, with this critical uh, portfolio responsibility or portfolio's responsibility, who, who has basically been um, you know, an appalling minister, at least in public perceptions, just a, just a, a cluster yeah. of of errors and, uh, you know, messes and scandals constantly trailing him around. Um, nevertheless, he's carrying the ball at the moment. And it, one interesting quote from him was that Australia cannot and should not damage its economy to reduce emissions. And I think we're going to hear that as being the decisive sort of point of the politics going into the next election. And as this goes along, mm. uh, there are those who say we've got no option but to accept constraints on our economy in order to protect ourselves and be part of a global effort to try and protect ourselves from the what we now must surely uh, recognise are the catastrophic consequences of uh, of a rapidly glo- uh, you know warming planet. Um, but uh, whatever the environmental concerns, Angus Taylor, no, well, whatever happens, we cannot and should not damage our economy to reduce emissions. What do you make of that? Well, that's its own podcast, Hugh. Um, yeah, I, I think there's too much to unpack in that in the time that we've got. But I'll be interested to see what measures, and this is my segue, will be in the budget uh, when it comes to that, as well as a whole host of other things as well. Let's take a quick break. On the night of Azaria's disappearance, we'd heard the dingo growl. The kids are sleeping in the tent, and it was like... Did I really hear that? He turned and looked at me and said, the dingo's got our baby in its tummy. Lindy Chamberlain tells her story for the first time in 40 years. A world exclusive. See it 7.30 Sunday on 10 and 10 Play. So welcome back. This is uh, episode 71 of uh, The Professor and the Hack, and we're talking things energy just at the moment. And just before we move on to the budget, uh, PVO, interesting on gas, because you were up there. You saw Scott Morrison. You were there at Newcastle. It was a gas-led recovery, uh, uh, you know, and it looked huge. And this was what it was going to be, and it was massive. It was long scale. The government was going to intervene into into the into the, the energy market, potentially to build a, a gas plant. It still is the suggestion that's out there. Malcolm Turnbull comes up and says, it's a fantasy to say that you're going to have cheap, en- cheap energy based on gas. And Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, says today, he said, I am not advocating massive investment in new gas generators. He says gas has a role as infirming, as they called it, um, it's a supporting role as renewables mm, are getting ready mm. to take over. And so you just have some gas in there just to make sure that there are no black spots in the grid and all that kind of thing. But um, what does now that we've heard from all these other people, including Finkel, um, what does that what does that mean for what Morrison was doing in the Hunter Valley? Well, I, th- I think Morrison's going to have his out, isn't he? Because he's saying we'll step up if that we'll step in if the private sector doesn't step up. And I guess you know when, when all of this gets sorted out in the months ahead, 
his argument will be that the private sector did step up uh, in whatever various ways that they suggested that they would. And, and Morrison won't acknowledge that it's a backflip. In some ways, in fairness to him, it, it, it won't be. If he did make that quite clear in his speech, he doesn't really want to step in and, and build a gas-fired power station, but he will if the private sector doesn't do what he believes it must do in terms of guaranteed wattage and so forth. Now, if, you know, if they step up, then he says, great, happy days. Uh, that, that's our preferred way for this to have gone. And I, in other words, it's, I think it's more about the signal that he wanted to send to energy companies, which is, you know, make sure that there's a bit of certainty here for people. Because if you don't, we're coming in and nobody wants that, including the government, including the private sector. Uh, and clearly, according to the experts, uh, they, they shouldn't be stepping in either. So uh, that doesn't quite make it a bluff by Scott Morrison, but it makes it more bravado than substance, I would say. And so is coal done, um, other than a few rhetorical flourishes on tours through Queensland? Is, 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 is that the end of any new coal? I think so. Don't you? I, I'd be very surprised if, if, if coal came back now. But are we, are we still going to export coal in huge well, amounts? Obviously, that, the long-term contracts, it, brings, it yeah. still brings us an enormous amount of money. Well, I think that's a different issue um, because the exporting of coal generates you know, wealth, even though it also contributes, obviously, to emissions. They've got the not only convenient but actually interesting argument that if our coal is cleaner than dirtier coal that could be sourced elsewhere. And if coal fired power is not just a thing of the past, but will be a thing of the future in a lot of underdeveloped countries, we might as well take advantage of that rather than not because they're going to get it elsewhere. Anyway, I, I realize there's issues with that argument, but it's a sustainable one. I think pardon the pun for the government to run politically. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that the export of coal other than long-term contracts is, is anywhere near coming to an end. But I think the idea of new coal-fired power here in Australia is absolutely uh, an antiquated debate, but in, really, in many ways it always was. It's just that their last hope was that Scott Morrison would adopt some elements of that as a possibility. That doesn't look like it's much chance now, I would have thought. Yeah, well, after our bushfire summer last uh, season, the, the talk of uh, uh, big cyclones being forecast um, mm. for, to hit Queensland this year, all, all of this is a La Nina effect. So, of course, there's an, uh, climate change is an underlying noise there, but uh, whatever happens with the La Nina effect, which tends to be wetter and, and warmer in our part of the Pacific and brings bigger storms, it's being reinforced by that growing um, you know, heating of the, of, the, of the climate as well. So we'll see how everyone discusses these matters after they've waded through summer in their, in their rubber boots, um, looking at their roofs that have blown off. Um, you know, we hope it doesn't happen, but, but of course the, the modelling says it is going to increasingly happen. Um, the budget. Uh, mm. We're far away from it. This is a long delayed budget. Uh, it's extraordinary, you know, because the last budget was in April of last year because they brought it forward yeah. Uh, yeah. for the election. And so I don't know if there's been a longer period between two formal budgets and what has happened in that interim. You know, when they, when they went to the election, they half expected to lose it back in April of last year. Um, whatever happened, they didn't expect a pandemic and the most grievous uh, reversal of fortunes since the Great Depression. What are you expecting? Oh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, 18 months ago, a budget that looked like a bit of a political last hurrah for a government that was more likely to lose than win an election very shortly thereafter, with a lot of political positioning um, in relation to bragging about a surplus that hadn't yet been delivered, but 
they were already claiming credit for it because that had political advantages to go with it. Followed by what? Followed by a surprise election win, all the various shenanigans ahead of the fires, a pandemic, the likes of which the world hasn't seen for a generation, uh, with an economic effect the world hasn't seen for a generation, in recession, about to hand down uh, a budget where red is the new black, it certainly won't be in the black as promised. It will be deep in the red more than any time in Australia's rich history. Uh, some of the reports suggesting as much as $200 billion as a deficit. Uh, it is just a turnaround in 18 months that was unimaginable in April last year. I remember you and I, Hugh, we were sitting in the lockup. We were somewhat cynical about you know, the numbers that they were predicating their return to surplus the following year on and whether the growth forecasts were you know, too bullish or not. Um, but we certainly weren't expecting this. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The government's got the excuse. I mean, there's a few levels to this. They've got the excuse that they need through the pandemic entirely understandably not to hit the benchmarks that they'd already taken credit for as opposed to just promised to meet in terms of the budget. None of that matters now. No, no one's a fiscal conservative anymore. Uh, Scott Morrison barely was, frankly, other than the optics of it. Yeah, he was always one of the ones before he became Prime Minister arguing for things like subsidising SPC Ardmona in Cabinet and getting overruled by then-Treasurer Joe Hockey. So, you know, this, this suits Scott Morrison in a way because the handouts work for him. Uh, they're pulling the rug out on some of those payments now. I'll be interested to see just how much of that happens with reducing those payments into the future. But, you know, there's, there's spending galore. Today, as, as we record this, Hugh, I, I couldn't help myself but tweet it this morning when I saw the splash in the Australian about research assistance for universities. The government has, you know, cottoned on finally that, uh, that there's some issues there and we might see some more detail in the budget around help for university research. That's a That's a... A problem that nobody could have seen coming, could they, over the last six months is I've seen nothing but talk about the lack of assistance for the university sector. That looks like they might get something in the budget. I get the sense that this certainly won't be a budget of restraint, and frankly, nor should it be, um, because the government needs the, 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 the country needs the fiscal help because monetary policy can do so little at the moment with interest rates at historic lows. But there've got to be limits to the spending. And and this is this is the where the dilemma lies. It's not whether you, there's going to be a surplus. Plenty that argument is long gone. But the mm. at any time in the in the probably in my lifetime, who knows? But they uh, there has to be, and you're seeing signals of an attempt to organise some restraint around spending and to target, I suppose. So there's talk of uh, you know wage subsidies to employers who pick up people. Uh, so you know, how that works, whether that is, Keating used it, but it's whether, um, you know, what is going to be the device as they wind back on JobKeeper um, as they probably retreat on JobSeeker, maybe not all the way back to where it was with Newstart, but, the, but they're going yeah. to have to make some arrangements around that. So they're pulling money out. And then there are arguments for JobKeeper to be better targeted but it's it's inordinately difficult, I would have thought, to get the perfect policy settings that are going to not blow out the budget more than it needs to, but nevertheless try to establish uh, confidence and support for people who are in still in for a, a sustained period of real grief, people becoming homeless, uh, real desperate stories emerging across Australia. These are these are 
heavily weighted decisions that are going to be made uh, in this in this budget with real consequences for people. I've never seen it quite like this before. Well, and I noticed that um, in her quarterly essay, uh, Catherine Murphy from The Guardian, uh, in an interview that she got to do sitting down with Scott Morrison, not something that you know, the political editor of The Guardian often gets, as she noted in her quarterly essay, uh, she asked him what I think is a really interesting question, which, and this was just as... Um, what was happening in Victoria was unfolding. So the second wave was was underway, if I could put it that way. And she asked you know, whether whether he thought that the worst of it was now about to be behind us, including enveloping Victoria in that. And he basically said, I hope so, but I fear not. And I think that was a nod to the economic perils that are in front of us for 2021, quite aside from any of the the health issues. And Hugh, you're right. You know, we've got a generation or generations of people who are now going to be accessing support who probably never thought they would and certainly aren't used to some of the more punitive elements of it. We've got a government used to being at the vanguard of insisting on punitive measures around welfare assistance, now having to grapple with the reality that people that may well be their natural constituents are now having to access it and perhaps don't want to face up to that, uh, not to mention the realities of if the money gets wound back, it's nowhere near enough to live on. Uh, business continues to struggle and need support, um, but the government is keen to try to wind it back because, as you say, the spending can't go on indefinitely. Uh, I actually think that the spot where they're likely to land is that the spending will go on more indefinitely than we perhaps realise at this point in time, or perhaps more than they realise, and this might not be uncovered in the budget. So they might be suggesting in their forward estimates that it's going to come off more than I think it ultimately will, because I've got a sense that this might take longer to get out of than people think. Their original hope was for a snapback and a V-shaped recovery. They then That gave way to a U-shaped recovery. I, I think it's going to be uh, more of a flatline or, or a very slow improvement rather than a, a rapid one. Uh, I hope I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Look, and, and the other thing which is interesting is going to be the assumptions built into it, because obviously the, uh, you know, the, the delivery of an effective and safe vaccine uh, will alter enormously what the prospects are for business to open up and, and tourism to come back and all that yeah. sort of stuff. But increasingly, I'm seeing that there's all this political desire in the United States chiefly, but also just to keep people's spirits up to say, yep, a vaccine's coming. We're going really, really well. And yet you see the experts on it's pushing back and back on the date on when a vaccine, uh, you know, effective vaccine might be generally available and towards the second half of next year. Um, and some are saying that's too optimistic. Uh, so the vaccine again remains critical to where we, where we are. In all oh, the absolutely. Numbers. I mean, we've only got a minute or so to go here, but from my perspective, I think it's that cultural shift as well. How does society change off the back of having had such a disrupted 2020 in terms of our normal practices thereafter. What does that do to travel working situations? And then as a result, also the disruption, there will be sections of the economy that, you know, grow off the back of the disrupted changes, but then there will be huge pillars of traditional society, including the media that we work in, uh, that have been so disrupted that you wonder whether they can survive some of them. Uh, and, you know, that, that includes sections of tourism, retail, travel, um, you know, airlines, you name it. So it's, there's an incredible amount of uncertainty going forward. 
Well, we wish everyone the best as we always do. And for those who have contacted us about the audio quality, our apologies. It has been ropey. We've been trying to uh, build it up as we do this from our respective homes. And uh, hopefully you're, you're hearing uh, some some um, some improvements, I suppose. But mm. uh, we have paid attention to your complaints about it. <laughs> um, and thanks for staying with us. PVO, all the best. Um, I'm going to take a break uh, at the end of this week, but I will be there with you to cover the budget. And I'll see you down in Canberra. Talk to you then. All the best. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I told the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubelin. And I spoke with Mr Jubelin not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.